0: So I pray that last week was a blessing to you all as we began to explore our worship through a different kind of lens as we started to work with this phrase, with this new sermon series, Why Do We Do Things? Why do we do this? Examining various facets of our worship, um, asking why we do it in the first place, um, Where we're out of this just desire to have an informed worship. You know, as Christians, there's no um, intuitive um, blessing in just doing things for the sake of doing things. But when you look at everything as if it has a purpose and a meaning, we act differently and we react differently to it. And that's really what this series is all about today. So we're going to cover a couple of different facets of our worship this morning. But they all kind of fall under this umbrella of preparing to worship. Now, why do we prepare to worship? Isn't that something we should just go ahead and do? Isn't that something we're supposed to do all day long, perhaps? Well, yes, but there are all kinds of hindrances to our worship, aren't they? I know for myself, coming, in, I'm not always ready to worship at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just coming over from one thing, and you know, I just got the kids up, and I got them dressed, and I had to do this, and I had to do that. And I had a meeting, and I had to talk to this person before service, and I had to talk to that person, confirm this other thing before service. And I'm talking to a whole bunch of you guys, wanting everyone to feel welcomed here. And by the time I physically stand up here, I'm feeling kind of flustered sometimes. I'm not ready to worship all the time when I first walk up here. And, and I know that if I'm not, if I don't deal with those things before service, those things will carry, those worries and those things blocking my mind and my heart from worshiping will carry on into the service. And, the, uh, and in a cruel twist of fate, sometimes if we don't prepare our hearts to worship, We'll come here worried about a bunch of things. We'll keep being worried about a bunch of things while we're here during this service, and then we'll leave having neither worshipped God or worked on any of those things we were anxious about. Nobody wants that. So has anyone else done that before, or is it just me? (laughs) That is why we prepare. And, you know, I've been to... um, Churches that skip this step of preparing to worship things like the things that we're, co- we're going to be covering this morning and just jumping right into the first hymn or jumping right into other various parts of our worship. And, you know, that's fine, but I personally miss it when that happens because my heart is still working its way to the right place during that first hymn, during that first exhortation, during the first whatever it is going on. And so the first step for us as we begin to prepare our hearts for worship, ironically, is the welcome and announcements. Oh, yeah, we're going verse by verse through the bulletin today. Sorry. (laughs) But think about it. How on earth does the welcome and announcements help my worship? What does that have to do with worship? That has nothing to do with worshiping God. Exactly. That's exactly the point. We get all of the business stuff and all of the marking of your calendars out of the way so that now that the business is taken care of, we can now set the eyes of our hearts towards God for the rest of the hour we have together. That's done very purposefully. Get that stuff out of the way. And, you know, I've been to churches and I talk to ministers that do this, the announcements may be after the sermon, or, so to make sure that everybody hears it, or maybe before the, or after the first couple of hymns, but then right before the sermon. And, you know, that's okay. They can do it however they wish to do it, but that gives me spiritual whiplash for me to have my eyes focused up towards the heavens. Again, the eyes of my heart I'm speaking from, up towards the heavens, focused on the things of God, to then bring my eyes back down to focus on things of the earth and then throw my head back up towards the heavens for the sermon. And that starts to hurt the neck after a while, literally and spiritually speaking. So rather, we get that out of the way, we focus on each other, we talk about the events coming up, and then we turn our eyes towards the heavenlies for the rest of our time together uninterrupted. Much easier on the neck. And plus, I know this is selfish of me, but it gives us all an incentive to show up on time, doesn't it? Make sure we don't miss an announcement, right? But the real reason, the spiritual aspect of why we do announcements is intrinsically linked to the last sermon we did last Sunday. As I talked about who we are, that when we think of the word church, we're thinking less about the structure, the bricks, the sheetrock. And more about the people sitting next to us we are a the church is the community you guys are the church and i say that because as we remember that we are the church the announcements are talking about what we are doing together as a community as a community gathered together in christ and announcements are just informing you know how we are functioning as a community, whether it be an outreach, a a fellowship event, an opportunity to help somebody. That's how we find out how we can better be the body of Christ. And again, we get that out of the way early to focus on God the rest of the time. And then there's the prelude. And this seems like it's the least important part to us, doesn't it? I mean, in this hectic northeast culture that we find ourselves in this always going culture you mean we're actually going to stop and do nothing for a couple of minutes that doesn't sound like us new Jerseyans. but to me personally this is at least as important as everything else we do on sunday because again i just confessed myself all the running around and how flustered i can feel sometimes and I know I'm not the only one here who feels like that. That prelude, that's our time to settle our minds, to settle our hearts, to meditate for a minute, to read God's word, to pray, to just settle ourselves. And in this constantly going culture, for some of us, that might be the only time we're quiet and meditate for a week until next Sunday. So it's, it's good for us to be able to do that. I know uh, one week, the week that we first installed this camera that some of you guys are watching online joining us for, when we first set, set that thing up for our very first Sunday, we had that thing. I was running around like a madman before service. I mean, I, I couldn't put two thoughts together when, the first time we went live with that thing. And then we sat down and then the prelude finally happened. Even through announcement, my mind is scatterbrained. I couldn't, you trust me, you did not want to hear a sermon delivered through that kind of a brain. Then after a couple of minutes, just, I forget if it was Arvid or Phyllis playing that day, but just a couple of minutes to just settle our minds. Man, I was ready to worship after that. Something just touched my heart that particular Sunday. And so that's what this is all about, settling our minds. And so even if the rest of you guys don't need this, I do. (laughs) So we're definitely going to be keeping this part in as part of our worship and by the way, this, this same principle takes place for each of us as individuals throughout our week. This isn't just a principle that takes place on a Sunday morning. We ought to each take time for God daily to settle our minds, to settle our hearts, to spend time in prayer. Because, let's face it, on those, day, on those days where we don't take that time to set our minds on God, those are the days we're most easily stressed the days were most easily flustered. The days that it's hardest to find God in those, mo- in those everyday moments. But once you set your mind on God, even, those, even the crazy busyness of life, even in this Christmas time season we find ourselves in, our minds are less prone to be flustered. No, I love what Martin Luther actually said on this subject. He said something to the effect of, oh, I have so much to do today. Too much to do in a, in a whole given day. Therefore, I must spend three hours at the start of my day in prayer. There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom that we have forgotten about, about that. Especially in our culture today. You know, I remember when I got home from my missions trip to Haiti a number of years ago. And uh, I remember afterwards, after seeing what I had seen down there and experiencing God the way I experienced him down there, nothing could bother me anymore. I mean, I was working a customer service job in a, let's call it an entitled area at the time, and my goodness, you know, the things that would normally get me really just riled up, just, it, it just slid off of me after that experience, Like people coming up and complaining, yelling at me over a $20 purchase. And I'm like, I I genuinely felt pity for them most of the time afterwards. This is what you're riled out about? Don't you know what's taking place a, a thousand miles from here? It changes our perspective once our mind is fixed upon the heavenlies. That's the power of what happens when we set our minds on God. And so, and that's why we do that prelude. And by the way, there's some ministers that have made the argument, oh, we that's why you should come to church early. You should do that part without a prelude. You should come to church early and pray in the pews while other people are coming in. And I get that, but that undermines the, the reason why we gather together in the first place that we talked about last week. We're a community guys. We're meant to be in fellowship with one another. We're meant to be encouraging each other. And I'm not going to stop interrupting you guys and saying hi and getting to, entering into your life, checking in on how you're doing, asking how I can pray for you and be a resource to you guys. That's why we're here. And besides, this is New Jersey. I can't expect you guys to arrive early. <laughs> we don't arrive early for anything. So, all bad jokes aside, then we move on to the chimes. Does anyone know why we do chimes? It's a good question. The Westminster Chimes, or the Westminster Quarters, have been around for a very long time. And, in fact, they used to even have words associated with them. I'm not sure how many people even know that. Here's what's inscribed on a plaque on the clock tower in Westminster. And here are apparently the words. All through this hour, Lord, be my guide that by thy power, no foot shall slide. Interesting, right? And I will say, those are great words to meditate on. That is a great prayer to say right before worship. You know, as we're prepared to, on this seam of preparing our hearts for worship, to be able to say, Lord, in this hour, be my guide. That Through your power, don't let my foot slip. Don't let me become distracted. Let my mind and my heart be focused on you for this hour. Keep me attentive to you and your ways. That's a beautiful thought. And I'd like to think that that's why that chime became so popular why you hear it in church bells all over the country why people wanted to hear it in doorbells as they started to get more fancy and advanced because we wanting to come back to this focus you know you know in this hour be my guide especially when you think about that in terms of a clock i mean that makes so much sense but i'm going to be honest i don't know if that's the reason why that chime became so popular Because I had to do so much Googling just to be able to find out what I just taught you guys. This was not readily available. This isn't common knowledge. I had to spend way too much time in front of a computer to find that out. Just because I was that curious. And how it ended up in a worship service. Who had the idea to link the two? I still don't know. I genuinely don't know. And... Let's be honest, did any of you think of those words that are attached to that chime when we started our worship? Would anybody who walks through the front door on a given Sunday for the first time make that connection? Unless you're an advanced historian in music, probably not. So, if I'm honest, this is probably the least necessary part of our worship, those chimes. They're pretty. They're traditional. They're the way we've always done it. But are those reasons to keep doing something just because we've always done it that way? It's an uncomfortable question. But it's a question that needs to be asked. And I leave that to you guys this morning. But I will say this, though. Just because we don't know the meeting doesn't mean... We shouldn't seek to discover the meaning in things, as is the case with the rest of our worship. You know, as has as been our theme, you look at our bulletin, everything has a reason and a purpose for why it was put there. And even the Old Testament itself is full of religious symbolism, tradition, and, for lack of a better word, not obvious scriptural references or... Um, You know what I'm trying to say. The the meaning isn't right there on the surface easy to see all the time. I mean, just look at the tabernacle, for instance, if you know anything about the Old Testament. The the pre-temple place of worship where every last detail of this construction had a deep spiritual meaning to it. The lampstands, the showbread, the incense, the, the placement of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, even the colors of the, of the, of the drapes and the things that they put all and, and, and that they decorated with. Everything had a meaning to it. And I've met people who get crazy into the details of l- l- researching what every last little thing means. Because you can do that for a detailed-oriented person. There is a vast amount of wealth to discover in all of that. And I think that for so many of us, though, we miss those meanings. We just kind of read past those passages, not really thinking about them even a second time. Often because... We don't look for them to have meaning. We make the mistake often when we read the Old Testament, we, when we read the laws, when we read the details of like a blueprint like that, for instance. The problem is we, if you assume something is meaningless, you won't find meaning in it. But if you assume something is meaningful, if you look through even those obscure passages of the Bible and think there's a reason why God wanted this in his word you might be surprised at what you find. You just might be surprised. Now, as Christians, we look at the world through a different lens than a lot of our secular friends and neighbors and family. You know, when you look at the world through a Christian worldview, you expect to find meaning in ways that are atheistic friends that look through world in an atheistic evolutionary kind of way you come to different conclusions and you miss things when you don't look at things through God's perspective you know I remember even in middle school learning about junk DNA it used to be theorized that Half of our genetic code was basically junk, just leftovers of the genetic code that our bodies don't use anymore. They're leftover from when we were monkeys. And because that was the assumption, they didn't look for meaning in this junk DNA, or so they called. Guess what? Even last month, UC Berkeley put out an article detailing more and more things they're finding in that junk DNA. They're finding out, hey, some of this stuff is actually really important. It helps us decode other parts of the the genetic code that we wouldn't have if we didn't have this junk stuff. And you can go on and on. I think by the time they're done deciphering all of this, they're going to find out 100% of it gets used. But again, that's because I'm looking at it through the lens of a Christian where God created that code and he did it for a purpose. So if you look for meaning... And you expect there to be meaning based on your worldview. You'd be surprised in what you find. You know, not to get too detail-oriented, but they say the same thing about what they call vestigial organs, parts of our body that are just byproducts of our evolution, that, you know, they don't serve a purpose anymore. Again, when you look at them scientifically, when you study them looking for meaning, they have them. People used to say, oh, the appendix doesn't really need anything. Everyone should just go ahead and take them out. The more study we do the more we see it affects our immune system that it it does serve a purpose just because we don't know what it is doesn't mean there isn't a meaning so again just that's my that my hear my exhortation this morning the things that god finds meaningful or the things that serve a purpose we should look for them and as we discover them We appreciate them, and we see how they apply to our lives. You know, my pastor used to say that reading the Bible as a youth was kind of like reading somebody else's mail before he became a Christian. You know, there's a cute story here and there, that David and Goliath thing was kind of entertaining, but, you know, for the most part, I'm reading this stuff, and it's just stuff that doesn't apply to me. But then as he became a Christian, as he got a little bit older... Now, every word of the scripture just came alive. You read the promises of God, and that's a promise to you personally, that you can take. You read passages like the familiar Romans eight twenty eight, that God works all things together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you don't love God, that verse, you know, it's like, okay, that sounds like a cute Christian philosophy. But then it's like, no, you can, when you read that and realize, wow, that applies to me. That applies to my situation. That's a beautiful thing. It changes everything when you look at life through that lens. And so with that in mind, let's just look at a example from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16 is one of the most beautiful representations of Christ in the Old Testament, Period. But if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it as just another thing that the Israelites did mindlessly. See, Leviticus 16 was talking about the Day of Atonement, their big high holy day, if you will. (laughs) And on that day, they had this ritual where two goats would be brought forward. One would be killed, offered as a sin offering. And the other one, they would pray over it, they would confess their sins over it, and they'd set it free and let it go into the wilderness. Do you guys see the significance there? The one goat was killed as a sin offering and the other one was allowed to go free. In case you still don't miss it, that's that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. Where he took the punishment, the the was the sin offering, taking the punishment of sin upon himself so that all others who believe in him could go free and be cleansed of their sins. And this ritual, I mean, this is the day of atonement here. This was something they celebrated every year, not some obscure law that applied to something every 100 years or so. They did this every year. They would offer up these two goats and kill one and set the other free. Every year, kill one and set the other free. And at some point, you got to wonder if somebody would stop for a minute and think, I wonder what this means. I wonder what God is foreshadowing through this. What lesson does God want me to hear from this? And for years, the people of Israel missed it. This prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Tie that to other passages like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. You can connect the dots pretty easily. But maybe it's because they never stopped to ponder what it means. Maybe our New Jersey culture isn't that unique. Maybe they were running around like crazy in Israel back then too. Maybe they just accepted, oh, the leaders probably understand what this means, so I don't have to. Lord knows that happens all the time. Even today. Even now, as that passage is read in our Bible in a Year programs that some of you guys do, and I highly encourage you guys to think about doing in this upcoming new year. When you got, come to a passage like that, sometimes we just assume, oh, this is just another meaningless sacrifice the Israelites did for some reason. Maybe I'll ask the pastor about it later. I'm sure he gets it. And we just assume And we never get the answers because we never ask the questions. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. That's the beautiful thing about this series. We get to ask questions. Not every religion does this. Many religions don't let you ask questions. Oh, how dare you question the teaching of so-and-so? How dare you question the words of our book of faith? No, we would have a different view. No, ask your questions, because the Bible has answers. We have confidence of that, so we are free to ask those questions. And that's my encouragement to you guys this morning. Ask your questions. Let me know what they are. Let your friends know what they are, and let's find the answer together. Whether it be a question from the Bible or a question from the bulletin, there's answers to why we do things the way that we do. See, there's little virtue in Christianity for doing things just because we do things. But there is great value in asking questions and applying the answers. Because that just might improve our experience as Christians and allow us to worship more clearly and less distractedly. Thanks be to God. Amen.